Daniel 11 is, um, how many times have I said this is the hardest chapter in the whole Bible? It's just the third or fourth one I've said that about, and uh, now we're in chapter 11. It's, um, there, there are 45 verses a- ahead of us, um, and I don't know if we're going to get through all of it, but chapter 12 is only 13 verses long, so next Tuesday we'll... I think just finish whatever we don't get to today and, uh, and move along there. So <clears throat> I, on your handout, I've divided this kind of into two halves. The, um, the first 35 verses about um, the time of Alexander, the great general, or generals, I should say, and then leading up to Antiochus and the abomination that causes desolation. Um, And then the last 10 verses or so, or 11, is the time of the Antichrist in the distant future. So we have a type of Antichrist in the immediate future, and then we have the actual Antichrist in the distant future. And that seems to be the way the chapter is laid out. But in general, uh, the angel, uh, who may or may not be Christ, is telling the prophet Daniel things are going to get difficult in the future. But of course, what's always there when things get difficult for God's people? God is always there for God's people. Jesus is there for us. Um, And that's um, sort of the unstated conclusion of this chapter. It's going to come into the next chapter, though, um, where things are going to get very, very difficult. I was watching... um, uh, 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 there's a reboot on PBS of All Creatures Great and Small. Do you all remember that? From my mother and I used to love that show, and we watched. And, and I was watching it Sunday evening. Um, and uh, the the, the uh, James Harriet's father looks at his clothes and says, "You're all wonky." And I thought, "That's we used to say that when I was a kid. You're all wonky, and that's how things are going to get in the future. It's going to get all wonky, um, or the um, what's the Welsh version of wonky? Cattywampus." Um, and uh, things are going to get harder, and and things are going to get stranger. Well, this is what's going to go on for God's people. So we finished with chapter 11, verse 1 last time. We're now picking it up at verse 2. Now I will tell you the truth. Look, three more kings will arise for Persia. So what country are we certainly talking about here? Three more kings will arise for Persia. I'm trying to be as, as, as obvious as possible. Um, for Persia, that's where we start the chapter. And I say that because commentators and, and ancient commentators have been so confused that they even miss that. Um, and I, 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 uh, I'll talk about Symmachus maybe a little bit later, because we should talk about that, but... Well, three more kings in Persia. Then the fourth one will gain great riches, more than anyone else. As he becomes strong through his riches, he will stir everyone up against the kingdom of Greece. So now, more blatantly, right? We've got Persia, we've got Greece in the immediate future. Um, And so who are these four kings? Well, we start with Cyrus. That's where we are. Four more kings would take us from Cambyses, to this guy, Bardia, Darius I, and then Xerxes. And Xerxes is Esther's king from the book of Esther. And there actually are a couple more after that, but really it's with Xerxes 
that things begin to go downhill for Persia. And Xerxes has some mistakes that he makes and so forth, and things are going to go bad. So even though Persia will continue for a while, does, it, does a kingdom have to fall completely to be defeated? You know, uh, no. So uh, uh, this is an actual, uh, it's a modern drawing of an ancient uh, coin of King Xerxes, Esther's, Esther's king. Um, I say Exter? Uh, Esther's king, sorry. Now we move on to somebody else. A warrior king will arise. And by the way, this is the way the whole chapter goes. Historical tidbit after historical tidbit after historical tidbit. You know, maybe I should talk about, did I mention Symmachus a second ago? Maybe I should talk about him a little bit because there was um, a, a, a Christian commentator um, named Jerome back in the 4th century and he was floundering with Daniel, with the prophecy of Daniel. And he read this heathen interpreter of the book of Daniel who took all the stuff in chapter 11 and said, you know what, this kind of follows the 3rd and 2nd century B.C. history. And nobody had ever said that before. But this pagan thought of that. Why a pagan was looking at Daniel 11, I don't know, but, which sounds like a Groucho Marx line, but it's not. And, and Jerome did the church the great favor of at least lining up. Because what do Christians in ancient times do with pagans? They dismiss them and they throw them out. And so we have no record of them. But Jerome didn't do that. He took this guy's um, analysis of the chapter and, and, he, and he, uh, there was a, there was a, a bishop in, of, an, of an Anglican bishop who said he gave us a sane interpretation of the chapter uh, because it, it does, especially the first half of this, does seem to historically fit Point for point, what happens from the 300s to the mid-100s B.C. With, an, with amazing accuracy. So that's, that's where we're going here. So a warrior king will arise. He will rule a great dominion and will do as he pleases. And this is Alexander the Great. Um, maybe a stylized a sculpture of him. He's like the best looking guy ever or whatever is going on here. His hair is almost as nice as mine. And, uh, and, and, and I didn't say that. Um, this is the way his empire erupts though. So Alexander is uh, 20 when his father Philip is killed. He's 20. And by the way, anybody know who Alexander the Great's tutor was? His school teacher? Uh, you have to go down two guys after so uh, it's, it's, it's Aristotle, but you're in the right ballpark. He got hired by, by Philip of Macedon to be his son's teacher. So he's been studying music, Greek dance, philosophy, memorizing Homer, you know, what a schoolboy would learn. Then dad dies, and the army says, come and command us. What? So, and this is what he does. So you see this map of Macedonia. He, I'll see if, how my animation does here. He conquers the southern part and then he begins to move into Asia Minor. Uh, he's very successful. He stalls at the city of Tyre, which was an island. And what does he do when, he can't, when, the, when the island of Tyre won't submit to him? 
He builds a causeway, which is a bridge made out of stone, takes seven months, and then he marches out and conquers the city of Tyre. Um, by the way, the causeway is still there. Um, it's, it's never been an island ever since. Um, then that makes him easily move down to Egypt, and he is uh, rivaling now the greatest kingdoms that have ever been. Uh, he gets this. Was there ever a kingdom bigger than this one in ancient times? It's massive. I mean, look at how far down both arms of the, of the, of the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea, right? He has contact with the Indian Ocean, except it keeps going and going and going and going. He's now touched India. By now, he's 33, this guy. Um, he has a white back. And I, just for comparison, I thought it'd be fun to look at how big this area is. By the way, he didn't just map this like Lewis and Clark or walk it. He conquered it. And on the far left in Greece, he left a general in charge. In and then in Asia Minor, he leaves a general in charge. Up in Syria, there's a general in charge while he's walking over that way. And another guy's down in Egypt. So he's got commanders helping him back behind him. He's very wise. He, he, he still knows his lessons from Aristotle, except one. He missed a lesson with Aristotle, which was be careful not to overindulge. He's a good-looking man in his 30s. So wine, women, and song comes to mind for the problem. And he dies out in the field. Okay, He's he, leaving two very young sons. Not always. Seven months at Tyre. You know, it, it, it depended on the circumstances. But he conquered Greece, all of Achaia, in I think seven days. They just fell. They just, they, he shows up with 10,000 men, and the city garrison is 40 guys with spears. So, you know what? We'll join. <laughs> That's, you know, they're the wise. So, so Greece came under his domination right away. Okay. As he rises, his kingdom will be broken and be divided to the four winds of heaven. What would we say, four winds of heaven? We would say the four compass points, yeah, north, south, east, and west. But it will not be passed on to his descendants. He had children. Um, it will not be ruled with the same ruling power with which he ruled. Who could be Alexander? You know. By the way, he had... Um, did you know that he had epilepsy? The falling sickness? Yeah. Um, um, so did, they say, Julius Caesar. His kingdom will be uprooted and given to others besides these. So Alexander's wife and two sons, they suddenly disappear. We think that they were probably murdered. Um, they may have been exiled, but that's how things went in those days. It's not like it's not something he hadn't done himself. That's how things were done. But back in Greece, um, actually a really good general named Antipater ruled. I was reading about him this morning, a remarkable man. But he was replaced eventually by his own son, Cassander. And that's the coin that I found, um, the one who ruled Greece. Asia Minor was ruled by Lysimachus, who kind of looks like he has a ram's horn there, doesn't he? It's just, it's just the, uh, sometimes, you know, you've got curly hair, and it depends on how 
things blessed you that morning when you were doing your hair. So that's when he got the portrait taken. Have any of you ever seen the famous portrait of C.F.W. Walther? There's a famous photograph of Walther when he was an old man. Walther, you know, was the Missouri Synod leader in the 1850s. And in the 1870s or 80s, they came around and took a photograph of him. It looks to me like it was the weekend that he actually, and I'm not kidding, he had, um, I think, pneumonia. They got him out of bed. They didn't let him comb his hair. They didn't let him put his teeth in. And his, his collar is like half sticking up. And, and poof, that's the picture we have of Walther. But, you know, what are you going to do? Um, my high school senior picture, I had big curly hair in high school. Is it big enough? I had big curly hair in high school. And I went to get my senior picture taken in the pouring rain. And the woman at the, at, the, at the portrait studio, this is way off in Portage. You know, Portage is 10 miles from Poinette, so for me it was like the other end of the world. And, uh, and the, the, the woman there wouldn't even let me say a sentence. She grabbed a blow dryer and a comb and did something to my hair that nobody had ever done before. And in my senior picture, I don't even look like me. And my classmates are like, when did you ever look like this? I'm like, one afternoon in Portage. You know, so, oh well. Poor Lysimachus, one afternoon in Portage. Or what's that song, One Night in Bangkok? Oh, never mind. Um, you've, now, now we get to a name you know, Ptolemy in Egypt. All of the Egyptian kings after him are basically named Ptolemy with a number. Um, eventually, a great-great-granddaughter of his will be named Cleopatra. And then... All the ruling queens of Egypt will be called Cleopatra with a number. Um, who was the Cleopatra who was Mark Antony's Cleop Cleopatra the fourth, sixth? I, I forget, but anyway, we're not that far yet in history. And then up in Syria, uh, a guy who at least had the dignity to leave his helmet on for his portrait was Seleucus up in Syria. Uh, so these four men are the men who took over Alexander the Great's kingdom in the generation following Alexander. But Alexander was very vague in how he divided his kingdom. In, he had a will. And his will said, the one who is strong shall rule. So, okay, no names, I guess, huh? Um, and so, okay. Now, now, look at your sheet, if you will, um, where it says 11, 5 to 9, and then down below it says 11, 10 to 20. So we begin with south versus north, and then later we're going to find that it's north versus south. So can you just notice that division? I tried to be as simple as possible with a handout, but that's the way the chapter breaks out now here. It's first, it begins with south versus north, and then we have north versus south. So Egypt, and by the way, I just showed you four guys. We're only concerned about two. Just Syria and Egypt is all we're, that's north and south. Everything would be then west or even further west. You know, besides these two, but just these two, north and south, are all we care about. A king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become stronger than he and rule a dominion greater than his. So what this verse seems to mean is that the Ptolemy in Egypt 
He was threatened by Seleucus up north. He was the one who really should have been in charge. But this guy up north became kind of stronger. So after some years, they will make an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north and make a fair agreement. However, she will not keep the strength of her arm, and he and his arm will not endure. She will be given up. She and those who brought her, the one who fathered her and the ones who strengthened her during these times. So the divorced wife of Antiochus, her name is Bernice. When he gets married to somebody else, she's going to be furious. And what do you think she's going to do to her ex-husband and his new girl? She has them murdered. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was knife or poison was popular and... Also, what did finally the, the last Cleopatra did uh, snake venom and all kinds of things. So, but just continuing, the one who is a branch from her root will arise in his place. He will come against the army and come into the fortress of the king of the north. He will make war with them and win. And this is finally Ptolemy III. That Bernice that I mentioned, the, 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 the estranged wife, that's her brother. Are you confused yet? We're just getting started. Okay, there's more. But this, this, this heathen commentator, not that we take the word of the pagans, but he looked at this chapter bit by bit with the history he knew, and Jerome said, you know, this kind of makes sense. And ever since then, Western commentaries, including um, uh, Augustine and Luther and um, ahead of me, John Jeske in the Wisconsin Synod have said, this makes sense, that the beginning half of this chapter, and we're almost halfway through the beginning half now, that this seems to be the history that pointed ahead to the prophecy further. Except this history is prophetic for Daniel, because it hasn't happened yet. Is that clear? No, this is the angel just telling him. Well, it's a conversation with an angel. So it could be, maybe, yeah, maybe is he, is it like that Star Trek episode with the Guardian of Forever? He's got like the moving, quick moving movie picture of the future, and maybe, or it could just be, you know, write this down. He will also take their gods captive to Egypt with their cast images and with their valuable silver and gold vessels. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Now, Ptolemy III that third um, Egyptian king, he did confiscate idols of like Bel and Marduk and things like that from Syria. And, and the Persians had taken them out of Egypt and he took them back. So there was a little bit of confiscating of the gods. And there was a feeling in ancient times that if your god, if your statue, your idol, if it moved to a different place, the power would move, would move to a different place. Where in the Bible do we see somebody stealing gods? Yeah. Rachel steals her father's teraphim, the, the, the household gods, the little Barbie and G.I. Joe-sized uh, uh, divinities, along with their, the, the little shrine, the, 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 their silver and gold vessels that they're kept in. And, uh, but yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, there are others. There are other incidents like that as well. Um, but the king of the north will come into the kingdom of the south, uh, come into the kingdom of the king of the south. Then he will return to his own land. So there was, at, for the next couple of verses, there seems to have been 
there were some unsuccessful raids back and forth between Egypt and Syria that made Palestine their battleground. Why is Daniel being told this? You live in the battleground. So this is a prophecy for you. God said it was going to happen, and now God says it's going to come to an end in little pieces. Something? No? Okay. So, um, so that's where the battleground was, my little animated fire. Um, uh, you don't have to know if I worked on that hard or not. His sons will stir themselves up and will gather a huge force of many armies which will keep coming like an overflowing flood. They will stir themselves up again as far as his fortress. We'll talk about Megiddo when we get to Sidon later. This is Raphia or Raphar near, near Gaza, down on the southern, uh, the, the, on the Philistine border of Egypt on the king's route. And I want to talk about this battle is going to go on in our chapter here for about four verses. This is, this is what goes on here in this fortress of, of Raphia. By the way, it's June 22nd, 217 BC. That's the date that we're at for this particular battle. The king of the south will be enraged. He will go out and fight with the king of the north. The king of the north will raise up a great army, but the army will be handed over to the king of the south. This is still evidently that battle of Raphia. Very important historical ancient battle, but we don't talk about it much because apart from this, it isn't in the Bible. You know, this, this one prophecy talks about it, but it doesn't really affect like Isaiah, right? Or Acts or what is so, it doesn't, we don't talk about it very much. But here we are again. When the king of the north's army is swept away, then the king of the south becomes arrogant, though he will cause tens of thousands to fall. He will not win. Um, so this, these are the stats for the battle of Raphia near Gaza. So Egypt came with 70,000 infantry, foot soldiers. That's a big army, isn't it? 70,000. Um, they had 5,000 cavalry. You don't see cavalry in the Old Testament very much because horses were used to pull wagons, not to sit on top of. That was crazy talk. Sit on top of a horse. But then not only sit on top of a horse, but fight from the top of a horse is madness. But Cyrus the Great was the one who came up with that. It was his nation of Anshan that perfected fighting on horseback and really began the idea of cavalry. What do we call cavalry today? They still have cavalry patches on their arms in our army. Do you know what they, what they ride? Helicopters. That's the same concept. You're, you're higher than everybody else and you're fighting. And that's what the cavalry did. And today the cavalry divisions in our army are helicopter divisions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and also, Egypt had 73 African elephants. Um, they lost 2,000 men. Syria began with 62,000 infantry and 6,000 cavalry, kind of evenly matched. They had 102 Asian elephants. Now, the reason I even mention that is because, as far as we know, this is the only battle in history where African elephants faced Asian elephants in battle. And the record of the battle from an observer was that the African elephants could not stand the sight or the smell of the Asian elephants. 
and they, they ran. So that part of the battle was odd. Like, and, and there were elephants captured on both sides, and they still wonder which kind of African elephants were these. Were these the big elephants of Central Africa or the little elephants, not much bigger than Indian elephants up north in the desert? Or what were they, you know, what, there's an extinct kind of elephant that was still around at this time, the Syrian elephants, what were they? And so, but the north lost 14,000 men. The south lost 2,000. That's killed. The north also lost at least 5,000 more that became prisoners. So the, Syria lost this battle. But Egypt, although they won as far as the numbers went, um, it wasn't a great victory for Egypt either. Um, so, okay, Battle of Raphia, um, or Rafah, um, in, uh, in or near Gaza. You know, this, I, have I been acting like a fire hose blasting you with information here? I'm sorry. Um, so, that, yeah, the Lord is, is in charge, though. Okay, let's move on to the second historical part. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.